again, we're, we're, we're walking with Jesus to Jerusalem toward the end of his life and still hearing just words and nuggets of truth that he gives us for how to be a disciple. And today, the, the three nuggets he gives us are really about faith, service, and gratitude. And he's going to be directing our thoughts in all three of these to who Christ is, to who God is. And to remember, it's not about us, it's about him. There was a pastor one time that was out visiting some of, of his church members, and he took his young daughter along, and one of the, the places they went was an elderly couple, and they went in, and the, the man offered the daughter some chocolate-covered peanuts and gave her a handful of chocolate-covered peanuts. She's excited and just starts gobbling them down, and the dad is trying to be a good dad. It's like, okay, what do we say? And, and she looks up and, and with just the straightest face says, can I have some more? <laughs> so much for gratitude. He was trying to teach her to say thank you. And this morning, as we really focus and we end the section on gratitude, God is, and Jesus through his, through his instruction, is training us to get over ourselves, to get over the can I have some more attitude, and to say, really, walking with Christ, walking with God, is all about God. It's not about us. It's about Him and what He's doing and what He wants to do in our lives and the power that, that he exercises in our growth for the purpose of making disciples, for the purpose of him. You know, when we think of gratitude, there's all kinds of reasons that we struggle with gratitude, right? Sometimes we just forget. We live in a busy world and we forget to be thankful for things that God has done for us and that others have done for us, quite frankly. More often, we probably just get caught up in our own plans and our own lives and our own dreams that we forget to acknowledge others. But that attitude of gratitude is key to who we are if we're to be disciples of Christ. And so our theme today as we look at discipleship is that it isn't us, it's Him. It isn't about me, it isn't my power, it isn't somehow my great personality that causes growth and causes the work of God to happen. It's Him. It's His power, it's His calling, it's His strength. And so really all we can respond to that is with faith and gratitude. That's the natural response. Now we've been been going along and last week we went through some pretty tough verses. Just four little verses with just a few instructions. Watch out for sin, right? Make sure you don't cause anyone else to sin. Confront sin and deal with sin in the community and be a forgiving people. And these instructions, while only four verses, you can spend a lifetime working on those, right? Anyone come away from the verses last week saying, that's hard. That's hard teaching. I did. And and it is hard teaching, and especially the forgiveness part, right? It is hard to 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 know how to let things go and to restore relationship and to, to work through the junk that every family has, even church family, and to come and say, we still love each other, we still show grace, we still forgive, and we still receive each other in. And so the disciples, their response to that teaching is the first verse of today's text. And and I want to set that up because that is the setting for broader lessons on discipleship and faith and gratitude and service. But really, Jesus is also answering their question, how can you forgive? How can we be forgiving people? How can we be a people that confronts sin well and not with a hammer and not with anger and bitterness, but with an eye to reconciliation? You know, one of the things that I asked community groups this week was, would you rather pull a tooth or confront someone about their sin? And um, 
we had some tooth pullers. That, that's, um, I'd be a tooth puller if it was just my, ra- my druthers, if it was just what I wanted. But Jesus is saying it's hard teaching, but you're not alone in doing it. Turn with me to Luke 17. Luke 17, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 19 today, and, and really three sections. And, and the sections are what I just said, faith, service, and gratitude. And, and so we're going to, to work our way through pretty quickly now um, and um, see what God has for us in this text. Luke chapter 17, starting at verse 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under the chairs right around you. We'd love for you to take that out and follow along so you know this is God's Word. If you don't have God's Word at home, take that with you as our gift to you. It's that important. And we want you to be in God's Word and and diving deep in God's Word. So Luke chapter 17, starting at verse 5. And the apostles said to the Lord, remember they're answering the section about we need to deal with sin, we need to be a forgiving people. And their answer is, increase our faith. And, and, And the implication there is, this is hard. How do we do this? Increase our faith, increase our belief Help us do this. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And so we get Jesus' answer here. And point number one is faith. Don't worry about the size of your faith, but revel in the size of your God. Don't worry about the size of your faith, but revel in the size of your God. We don't need more faith, Jesus is saying. But we need to make sure our faith is in the real place, in in the real God. And we we need to increase our our view of God, not necessarily increase our faith. And let's unpack this and see. And so we see the context there that the disciples are saying increase our faith. I appreciate the question. Even if Jesus redirects redirects it and says, well, it's not quite the right question. The fact is they realize that dealing with sin and forgiving others and living as disciples is hard work. And they need his help. And and they go to him for help. This is a marvelous response. And as they respond to Jesus, then he's able to redirect it. But then in verse 6, we get really Jesus' point. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed. Now, I've put a picture up of of mustard seeds before. And I think Jeremiah has that now. I don't know whether you can see those little tiny tiny dots in the palm of the hand. Um, From the back, with my eyesight, I can't. But I'm lucky to see a hand. But... um, those little dots are mustard seeds. And it was proverbial for something very tiny, for the smallest seed of the day. And so Jesus is saying, if you had faith like a grain of, of mustard seed, if you even had tiny faith, even a little speck of faith, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, a mulberry tree is really interesting. I have a picture of a mulberry tree, too. It's, it's, there is probably a black mulberry tree. And I love this because they're probably just walking by it. Jesus was a master at using object lessons for teaching. And so they're walking by a tree and he turns it into this lesson about faith. It is wonderful. And he says, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea. Now, some things about a, a black mulberry tree, they had an extensive root system, extensive. In fact, they have found that the the root system of the mulberry tree, the black mulberry tree, lives for about 600 years. So this this outdates any of us. And um, this... (laughs) You got that. This extensive root system would have been really difficult to to pull up. Any of you ever taken out a tree at home? Yeah, I've, I've taken out one stump at home. 
and I thought it would be easy. And it, because it was a palm tree. How hard is a palm tree stump? But the thing about a palm tree stump, yes, it's a ball of roots and there's a clump of roots, but then they have these tentacles, right, that just go out into the dirt. And we were, we were fighting those things and trying to chop those things and, and pull that thing out for weeks before we did our, our add-on like 10 years ago. At some point, the thought goes to dynamite would help. And if it wasn't so close to the house and if Susie wasn't home, may, <laughs> maybe we would have tried that. And, and um, then I thought much safer would be gasoline and a match. Um, because we couldn't get that puppy out of there. The roots had, had, had infiltrated the ground around it and they were holding on. Now picture 600 years of growth to roots. And a root system that spread much more than a palm tree. And so Jesus is using this mulberry tree and this extensive root system to say, something that's nearly impossible is easy if you just have a grain of faith. Just a kernel of faith. And, and, and the, the picture here is not that they needed more faith. And Jesus is correcting that. That kernel of faith, that mustard seed of faith, is the faith that was given to them at salvation. It's the faith that they said, I am a sinner, I have a great God, I believe in Him, please save me. That's the mustard seed of faith. And Jesus is redirecting them from saying, I need more faith, I have to somehow work hard to get more faith, and I have to somehow, I have to somehow build my own faith, you know, lift myself up by my bootstraps. That's not what Jesus is saying. He says, you already have enough faith. Because the power of faith isn't how much faith you have, but what it's in. Does that make sense? And what our faith is in is in an infinite, all-powerful God. And so even a little bit of faith in an infinite, all-powerful God is enough because He can do anything. And Jesus is redirecting, stop looking at yourself. Look at your God. Look at your great God. Now, now, who, who our faith is in matters, right? I could have faith in Don Dyke this morning. And, and I could say, Don Dyke, I have faith that Don Dyke is going to make sure that my car does not break down on this vacation. <laughs> is that helpful? No. He can't do anything about my car when I'm in Oregon on vacation. He, he, can, he can pray. I should... He can have faith in a great God. <laughs> but on his own, he can't do anything. My faith is misplaced. Sorry, Don. Um, because he doesn't have the ability to do it. Now, if I have faith in God who has all ability and infinitely so, now that is powerful faith. And I, I find this section so encouraging because it's easy to get discouraged. I'm just not a good enough Christian, right? I, I just don't follow God enough. I, I, I need to grow more in Him so I can really get more faith so God can work. If you are a believer in Christ, you have the faith you need for God to do miracles in your life. And I'm not talking health and wealth. I'm talking about change from the inside out. Because any change in us to get rid of the sin is a miracle. And we have enough faith for Him to do that because it's not about us. It's about the size of our God. Leon Morris said, it's not so much great faith as faith in a great God. I almost made that my point, but that would have been stealing his wording. What great wording? It's not so much great faith as faith in a great God. The reason for this is the faith isn't the work. 
make sense? If, if God is changing things and God is working, his power is the real work. Our faith simply opens the door and allows him to work. And so I don't have to do the hard work. He's the one that does the hard work. He's the one that causes the change. And I can be confident in that. And so really, if we're sitting here today and and we're facing things that we don't know how to face, and if we're looking at our lives and wishing that we would grow and wishing some things would be different, the step isn't to, to somehow work harder for that. The step is to focus on a great God and to let Him do the work in our lives. A definition for faith that that I put together, I didn't put it in your notes because it's sort of long, but just listen to it. True faith. It's a confident belief and trust that the infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, righteous, just, present everywhere, completely faithful and reliable, loving God will do what He says and work all things for His glory and our good. Catch that? Do you see the focus? Let me read it again. True faith is the confident and belief and trust that the infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, righteous, just, present everywhere, completely faithful and reliable, loving God will do what He says. And it'll be for His glory and our good. Now that's a definition I can get behind because it doesn't rely on Ron being infinite. And it doesn't rely on Ron being all-powerful and all-knowing and all-wise and righteous and just and present everywhere because I fail at every one of those. But it's firmly rooted in the character of God. And Jesus, when they say, help increase our faith, he does that, but not by increasing their faith, but by saying, you already have enough faith and God is the one doing the work. This is a huge change of mindset. It's conviction that God will do what He says and He is able. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And and now now don't walk away with this trying to, to throw trees in the ocean. That's not what this is about. Jesus is using an example, okay? So this is a metaphor of what He can do in our lives. That He can handle the sin He can handle the sanctification that we need. He can handle the trials that we're in and the temptation we're in. And it will be for His glory and we trust Him in that. Which means it's not always the answer I want. But if He is good and He is faithful and He is loving, then even His no answers are better for me than my yes answers that I want from Him. And that helps me accept the no. And accept what He says needs to happen in my life. He can handle this. Now, it, I love this picture too because of the, the issue of forgiveness. He's just coming off, you need to forgive him. If he says seven times in a day, I repent, you, ha- you forgive him. And the reason that that's possible is because we trust God. Because it's a faith in God. So last week we ended by saying forgiveness is a letting go of an offense. It's a releasing of an offense to God. It's signing over the debt that says, you don't owe me anymore, you owe God. Have fun with that. Okay, maybe not the attitude at the end. Um, But forgiveness is releasing it to God and letting it go. So what's the picture here of increase our faith? 
the picture here is this mulberry tree that has tentacles that is deeply rooted. And an unforgiving spirit, the bitterness just affects every part of our lives. It, It digs in and it's deeply rooted. And Jesus is saying, with the faith you have, if it's in me, I can take that tree and completely remove it. The same idea of what forgiveness is. And cast it into the sea. And this is great news if we're struggling to forgive. If we are struggling with with bitterness towards someone. Maybe someone in this room. If we're struggling with a hurt that we just can't get past. And we can't let go. And we keep mulling it over and mulling it over. And it grows in our head and it festers. Your God can remove that and throw it far from you into the sea. But you've got to let Him. You've got to believe and trust in God and say, God, I don't want to hold on to this anymore. Take my little kernel of faith, my little seed of faith, because I know you are God and I know you've saved me and I know you've forgiven me. Take that and now use that to take care of this situation. It's letting go and giving God control. What a beautiful picture with the mulberry tree of God ripping out the tentacles of bitterness out of our life and ripping out those roots and taking them out of our lives and throwing them away. It's interesting, throughout Scripture, if you look at some of the great men of faith, great, great men that, that followed God, there's all, all often incidents in their lives of forgiveness. Abraham was a man of faith. Remember Abraham and Lot? And Lot, their herdsmen are quarreling and they're fighting over land and he gives Lot his choice. And Lot's like, cool, I'm going to take the best land and leave you the desert. See you later, Uncle Abraham. And, and Abraham forgave him. And he fostered a forgiving spirit. And he didn't hold that against him. Joseph, a man full of faith and trust, who got the raw end of the deal for 18 years of his life, forgave his brothers. I would dare say no one in this room has been offended as bad as Joseph was. And he forgave him. Because he knew he had a great God. Moses, reviled by Miriam and Aaron, the people closest to him. He didn't retaliate, but meekly trusted God. David stood over a sleeping Saul as his comrades urged him to kill him, and he spared Saul's life because he trusted God. Do you see the the connection between trusting God and forgiveness? If I trust that God can handle a situation, I don't have to stay in control and make the person pay. I can let it go to him. Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Men that were treated poorly, unfairly, had every reason to be upset and to hold a grudge, and they forgave. One author said, if a man is truly great in faith, he will be gentle and forgiving. And we don't connect those two a lot. But if a man is truly great in faith, he will be gentle and forgiving. Because an unforgiving spirit almost always is a lack of faith because we don't believe God can handle that person or that situation. And he needs our help to teach them a lesson. But faith in God says, I can release it to you knowing that you will handle things in a righteous, just, loving way. But this principle of faith goes beyond just the issue of forgiveness. He can handle anything in our lives. He can cause the spiritual growth. Faith may mean having to endure rejection and having the strength to to endure rejection, especially as we see the tide turn socially against Christianity. Faith means trusting God for spiritual insight. 
It means asking him for victory over temptation, which we talked about last week. Faith means accepting what he has brought into our lives and relying on him in grace. Can I repeat that one? Faith means accepting what he has brought into our lives and relying on him in grace. Because if my God is great and he's loving and all-powerful and he works all things for his glory and our good, then I can trust him with the bad situations I'm in, the hard situations. Faith means never letting go of our commitment to go where God is taking us and allowing him to work and to being his disciple. The object of faith is God. That's the focus, not us. And so, can we trust God? Yeah. Can we trust God? Still not convinced. Why can we trust God? Answer me that. He's a, he's a big God, great God. Why can you trust God? What was that? He said we could, okay? He shows by his example, by his faithfulness. I heard something. He's good? Did I hear good? See, this is how we increase our faith. It's, it's not the size of our faith. It's the size of our God. House, why can we trust God? Let's put this into practice this morning. He loves us. Absolutely, perfectly loves us. He's just. Creator of all. Always there. I missed both of those. What was over here? Sovereign. Merciful. He's, amen. He's able to, did you guys hear that? He's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. He's the I am. This is why a study of the attributes of God is so foundational to our Christian walk. Because without that theological foundation, we, we have nothing to have faith in. We have no reason to know why we can trust God. See, the things you just said affect every difficulty and every hardship you have. Tomorrow morning you go to work and your boss screams at you about something. Trust your God to help you through that because He hasn't changed. He hasn't changed and we can, we can forgive because we trust God. We can handle things because we know that they will work together for His glory and our good. Let's, let's not worry about the size of our faith but worry about the size of our God or increase our view of the size of our God. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to the disciples. The focus is on him, not us. Now, the next section is really interesting because that kind of faith, man, if we start throwing trees into the ocean, figuratively, that could lead to spiritual pride, right? Because, hey, look at, look at what God's doing through me, which is just the opposite of faith, right? Faith is trusting him to do the work. But when he starts to do stuff in our lives, we're, we're, we're people and we start to be like, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot more mature than those other people at Village. And, um, and so Jesus follows it up with, with a description of who we are and that a characteristic of a true disciple is humble service. Humble service. Make the desire of our hearts to serve our great God. Our, our desire, our wants, our passion should be to serve our great and incredible God. 7 through 10 is the next section. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once, recline at the table? And the applied answer is no. No. 
And, and recline at the table again. You've, you've heard me talk about reclining. That's how they ate a feast or at a banquet. And so they'd all get on this low table and recline and something that our kids still try to do, but um, we're no. Um, and they say, okay, he comes in from working and he's a servant. Well, the first thing you do be come, come eat with me. No. And verse 8, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink also. And, and, and he's, he's showing a picture of, of someone at work, someone that's a servant. And he says, no, what you are is a servant. You don't come in and be like, yes, I did one thing right, I'm done. I get the reward now, I'm equal with the master. No, he's saying, no, you, you continue to serve. You continue to work. And, and so the servant makes the master's work their priority, not their own food and drink and not their own desires. And so Jesus is addressing the heart, again saying it's not about you, it's about him. Verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? And the implied answer again is no. There's no, no expectation of huge thanks or wow. You went so far and above. Chances are, if you get to work on time this morning, your boss isn't going to be standing at the door saying, you are incredible. You you made it to work on time. I have a special bonus for you for, for showing up today. Now, in our culture today, we want bonuses for showing up and we want participation awards for showing up. That's not how life works. And in, in fact, when you go to work, your boss has this weird expectation that you'll do your job. Right? Now, we, we laugh because we're like, oh, that's sort of silly. But don't we sometimes get in that mindset spiritually? I, I serve God and, and I'm looking for a reward. I'm looking for appreciation. And, and if people don't recognize what I've done, now it's great to recognize what, what, what each other does and, and we should be. But if that's our expectation, that's a clear sign we've changed it to about us and not about him. Because Jesus' teaching here is, this is what a servant does. This is who you are. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? No. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And what a beautiful, godly attitude verse 10 lays out for us. No, no, I'm a servant of God. He's the great God. He's done all this in my life. What else could I do but serve him? I want to serve him. That's the attitude of a humble servant. Of a humble servant. We are his servants. We need faith from him. We need to trust him in all we do because we need his power and strength for everything we do. And that brings humility in. Humility is that a servant should, shouldn't expect anything else but to serve. Now the irony here and the beauty of our great God is that he takes his servant and he does bring them to the table with him. And we do eat with him in eternity. And it's going to be wonderful because he brings us into family. We're more than servants now, but adopted sons and daughters. But this is our attitude here on earth. This is what I do because I love God. This is what I do because I'm responding to what he's done for me. I don't need Christian of the month for what I did last week at church. You know, I I say that 
when like 60, 70 of you poured out your hearts and souls the last week at VBS. And so while you may not need appreciation, I, I want you to know we appreciate you greatly. And, and when, when we receive appreciation, because you guys did such a good job and you poured into those kids' lives and you poured eternity into their hearts and they heard the gospel and they heard how to follow Christ and there will be eternal blessings for what happened this week. But there's a difference of receiving that appreciation because you humbly served versus like, yeah, I was waiting for Pastor Ron to say that on Sunday. If he didn't, man, we're taking away our card. A servant doesn't expect it. And that makes the appreciation all the more sweet. An appreciation that is expected is hollow. It's weak. But an unexpected appreciation is amazing. And that is what we see here. We don't expect it. We're unworthy servants. We're not God. He is. We've only done our duty. We want to serve and worship our hearts. Let me just sort of wrap this point up. With, with, again, focusing on God and what he's done. The first point we focus on is attributes. This point, I'd like to focus on what God has done for salvation and what we've done for salvation. What did you do to earn salvation? Nothing. You sinned. <laughs> that doesn't count as doing something good. <laughs> you sinned and you believed that God could save you. you. You received his gift of salvation, which wasn't an act, but simply accepting what he's offering to you. That's our part. Have you thought about what God's part is? What did God do for salvation? He chose us. He called us. He sent His Son to live life on earth who was beaten for us. He was crucified for us. Jesus took all of our sins, past, present, and future, on Himself, enduring separation from God and God's wrath, paying the penalty for our sin. He died and was buried. He rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death. He offers us eternal salvation, complete forgiveness, and pure righteousness if we come to Him. He prepares a place for us for eternity. He advocates for us at God's right hand right now. And the Holy Spirit lives in us, helping us to walk with God if we rely on Him. Amen? That's God's part. What was our part? Nothing. Sin. How could we do anything else but serve and worship? The, the, the scale is balanced. And when, when I start to focus on this, again, I don't just want this to be, oh, I need to serve more. But if our heart understands what God has done for us, I am so blown away that how could I not worship Him? How could I not love Him? How could I not want to serve Him? See, the, the issue isn't that we have to work harder but we have to understand better who our God is and what He's done. And as we focus on that, our heart will change, guaranteed. Guaranteed. Let's move on to the last point, thankfulness, as we're running out of time. Thankfulness. Live in gratitude to God for what He has done. And this is just the natural outgrowth. If we focus on who He is, if we focus on what He's done... We serve, we have faith, but the end result is always gratitude and thankfulness. We're called to live in gratitude for what he has done. And Jesus uses a story to illustrate this. And um, actually, not just a story, but he uses a situation to illustrate this. Verse 11, 
on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, probably going from east to west in a region there. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And remember, leprosy made you unclean and you weren't supposed to touch anyone. So they're off in the distance, obeying the rules, being respectful. And these ten lepers off in the distance lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And the implication is there, there is heal us. Have mercy on us. They've heard his reputation. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priests. Now, now, one of the things when you had leprosy, if you were cleansed or if you, if you somehow were cured of leprosy, before you could go to anyone else because you were contagious before that, you had to go to the priest and they acted as sort of a health inspector. So they would check and say, okay, you're really healed. And, and so now you can reintegrate into society. And so this was the law of what they had to do if they were healed. Are they healed yet? This is so cool. They're not healed yet. He have mercy on me. He says, go show yourself to the priest. And, and I would be thinking, why? My, my hand is still falling off because leprosy would make limbs fall off. And, and I, I'm still sick. And, and catch what, he, what Jesus says and what, what happened. And as they went, they were cleansed. That is such a cool story that as they obeyed God, he worked. And, and so he said, go do this. They do this. They're cleansed. I, I think of Joshua in, in the Jordan River. Remember that? And, and they're waiting there trying to get across that flood stage. And what does Jesus have them do? Or what does God have them do? Put a foot in the water. They had to show some faith. These lepers had to show faith. They had to believe Jesus could do what he could do. And so they obeyed and they were cleansed. But that's not the point of the story. That's the backdrop of the story because Jesus is now taking the, the teaching one step further. Then one of them in verse 15, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He doesn't care who hears. I'm healed. Jesus healed me. And he's praising God and giving thanks to Yahweh and and honoring Jesus because he's healed. And he is not ashamed of this. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. He's not ashamed to give worship either. And that's a sign of worship. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And then you get the, the catch, the kicker of the story. Now, he was a Samaritan, the evil, dreaded, scummy Samaritans to the Jews. I'm I'm not saying that's what we should think. But what we see here is Jesus is crossing traditional boundaries. He's crossing racial boundaries. And he's saying everyone's welcome to the kingdom of God. And the Samaritan is the one that comes back and in gratitude to God gives him thanks. And Jesus answered some rhetorical questions. Weren't there ten? I counted ten. Did you count ten? And he says, where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And Jesus is dismayed at the lack of gratitude. At the lack of thankfulness. And he points it out. Because it's a problem. And, and he points it out as well as an illustration that the kingdom of God is going to more than just the Jews. Because the implication is that the other nine were probably Jewish. 
But then the foreigner is the one that comes back and thanks God. And so it's a picture that the kingdom of God, while rejected by Israel, was going to be available for all. But what an amazing lesson on gratitude. And, and, and of what Jesus is looking for. He fell on his face with humility. And he thanks God and he remembers that it's not just about him. The other nine, they're probably celebrating. We're healed and they're happy and anxious to get back to family. Anxious to get on with their own lives. That they forget that this is about what God has done. We have a great God. And we need to be in gratitude for what he's done. He was the only one. The only one that came back. But look at verse 19. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And that word for for made you well is the word for salvation. Your faith has saved you. And so these men with faith that Jesus could heal them were healed physically. But the one that came back and was grateful to God, that had a heart that turned to God, he received the greater gift. And that was cleansing from his sins. And he was saved. There are so many things that we can get out of this story. One of them, and and I come back to some theology from time to time and, and just weave that in. Sometimes people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. This is another story where Jesus claimed to be God. Because what did he, what did he accept? He accepted worship. He accepts praise. And then secondly, he offers salvation. Those two things can only be from God. So Jesus clearly knows that he is God here. He's claiming to be God. This nonsense that he was just a man and we've made up that he's God is, is exactly that. Nonsense. He is fully God and He is fully man. But what He's looking for is gratitude. A gratitude that says, I have more than I deserve and I'm grateful for it. See, when we, when we think we deserve things, that's when we're not grateful. If, if I deserve a paycheck, then I'm not grateful for that paycheck. In fact, I'm mad if I don't get it. And so gratitude is getting over this idea that I deserve to be treated a certain way and I deserve certain results. And there's all kinds of reasons we struggle with gratitude. Pride is the biggest. Self-sufficiency and independence. Sometimes we struggle with gratitude in our society because of the affluence of our society. We have so much stuff and there's an entitlement that comes with that. Sometimes we don't show thankfulness because we're just not in the habit of saying thank you. That's a little demeaning anyway, right? I have to put, you know, lower myself to say thank you to someone else. That implies that I, I couldn't do what they gave me. So we don't get, we're not in the habit of it. We need to realize thankfulness is a command. And this is just another story where Jesus is pounding that home. Five quick thoughts as we close about thankfulness. Some out of the text and some just general about thankfulness. The first is we must see our need to be grateful. And not that we need to be grateful, but we must see our need, that we have a need in our lives. And when God feels that, we're grateful. This is back to the deserving idea. If if I don't think I have a need, if I think I deserve what God has done for me, I'm not going to be grateful. God just needed to do that. He loved me so much because I'm so lovable. No, no, I'm not. You're not. Remember what we contribute to salvation? Sin. 
But God still loved us. Second thing that, that just a, a quick point, we need to make it a priority to give thanks quickly. I love the fact that the guy came back right then and quickly gave thanks. One author said, if people don't give thanks quickly, they usually don't give thanks at all. Isn't that the truth? If, if, and think about it, if you get a gift and you're writing a thank you note, if you write it that week, your ch- chances are you'll write it. If you say, I'm going to wait five months before I write my thank you notes. Not going to happen. And so there's just a practical, from the example of the the leper that came back, give thanks quickly. Make it right after, notice it, give thanks right away. Let her see there, be open and loud, in quotation marks, with your gratitude. Be be willing to share what God has done, stories of what God has done. We need good stories anyway, right? Let's turn off the news sometimes and share stories of what God has done and how we're thankful for it. And, and by loud, that simply means being public with it, being open with it. Letter D there, gratitude is the antidote for many sins, including pride and self-centeredness. In fact, an unthankful heart opens the door wide for sin to just march in. There is a tie between gratefulness and righteousness. Because there's a tie between gratefulness and humility. In Romans one twenty one, Paul writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, I've read that verse many times, but have you ever caught that it includes whether or not they give thanks to God of whether their hearts are darkened? That's part of it. And finally, we choose whether to be thankful or not in any circumstance. Thankfulness is a choice. It's not just when life is going well. In fact, I end with a story from Martin Rinkhart. He, he wrote the hymn, Now Thank We All Our God, about 400 years ago. And he wrote this, and listen to the words of this hymn. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices, who wondrous things has done in whom his world rejoices, who from our mother's arm has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love, and still is ours today. That guy must have had a blessed life. Just a good life, right? He wrote this during and in the middle of the 30-year war in Europe. The devastating 30-year war. He wrote this because he was struggling to feed his family. And so they would get the meager scraps of food they could and put it on the table, and he'd read this poem as thanksgiving to God. At some points, it's estimated that he as a minister, he was a pastor, he was doing up to 40 funerals a day. And he'd come home and say, now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices who wondrous things has done in whom his world rejoices. He chose to be thankful regardless of the circumstances he was in. Because his God and our God was greater than any circumstance on the face of this planet. And he recognized that. This, people, is what we need to practice. As we enlarge our view of God, it will increase the effectiveness of our faith. It will help us be better servants. But as we enlarge our view of what God has done, we can't help but respond with thanksgiving. We can't help it. So this morning we want to end with thanksgiving.
And as we do this, think, what has God done? What has God contributed to salvation? What have I? What has God done in my life? Can I trust a faithful God in any circumstance? This week, try starting your day every day with just maybe five minutes of thinking of things that you're grateful for to God. Thinking of things these and see what it does to your day. Because if you start your day that way, it just affects your attitude in so many ways. But let's be a grateful people to our God. First Chronicles 29, 10-13 says, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, O God, our God, and praise your glorious name. Let's go out and praise and give thanksgiving.